Uh, as is the habit of many, I often pick a word that provides a sort of theme for the year. Uh, my word for 2019 was build. Personally, I was finishing up seminary. As a church, we were gearing up for our first full year here in the Capitol Theater. For the first time in a couple of years, we weren't in a state of constant transition and trying to figure out what is what as we navigate tricky waters. We had a unique opportunity to dig our heels in and build. And the Lord was faithful in many ways to build us in 2019. We've worked really hard to get where we stand this morning, but we are just getting started. Looking back for a moment, there's much to celebrate. During our time in Risen City, our average attendance was around 82. Since we've been here in the Capitol Theater over 16 or so months, our average attendance has jumped to 95. So in a raw growth rate, that's about a 16% increase, which is very, very good. But when you consider the fact that we gave up over 20 people who normally attend resurrection services to plant another church in our city to more adequately meet the physical and spiritual needs of our entire city, when you factor in a loss of around 20 people to an 82-person church, our growth rate jumps to a pretty shocking 41%. Our average monthly income has increased greatly. Our capacity for ministry has increased in so many ways. Back in the fall, I had a leadership summit where we invested in our leaders. We laid the groundwork for much more investment that will come throughout this semester. And then a couple of weeks ago, we had a really fruitful membership meeting. And after both the leadership summit and the membership meeting, I thought, man, this is some really helpful content that I, I just want to disseminate to the whole fellowship whenever it would be appropriate. Well, a morning such as this is a moment I deem appropriate. Next week, we'll jump into a more conventional exposition of God's Word. In one sense, this morning is a normal Sunday, a, a normal exposition of a passage of Scripture. But in another sense, this morning is not a normal morning. The way I prepped and the way I prayed and the way I thought about this morning is as a meeting of the Resurrection Church core team. If it took 10 or so people to get to 100, it will take 100 or so people to get where we believe God is calling us. If you can hear my voice, we need you. If you're a member, if you're just dropping in, we need you to be part of what God is doing in and through this fellowship. We want you to be part. We don't want you to miss this. Now, don't get me wrong. My goal this morning is far from working us into a resurrection church fervor. In fact, during the early portions of the sermon, I may throw some waters on that flame because I'm more interested in sustained hope than viral hype. I'm more interested in sustained hope than viral hype. So I, you'll never guess the word for 2020. It's not behind me or anything like that. The word that has been repeatedly coming to mind for me personally as a disciple of Jesus and pilgrim to kingdom come, as the lead pastor of this church and my other uh, roles as an officer in our state denomination, the word that keeps coming to mind for me in all of those spheres is simply consistency. I want to think about consistency in three things this morning that we'll, we'll get from this text that Molly read for us and we'll see um, together. First, consistency in the pursuit of God. 
Second, consistency in small things. And third, consistency in pursuit of attainable goals. Consistency in pursuit of God, consistency in small things, and consistency in pursuit of attainable goals. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul says. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We'll first consider consistency in the pursuit of God. If you've read Corinthians, you know Corinthians is sort of uh, infamously an unhealthy church. Um, Corinthians is dealing with a lot of problems that uh, we would face today in terms of morality, in terms of the way they get along with each other. In so many ways, the church of Corinth is, is in a rough patch. This unhealthy church is also, we learn from this text and the whole passage in which it's embedded, is a divided church. It's a distracted church. A distracted church has grown cold to the love of God. A people meant to obey God are turning from God. Rather than focusing on God, they're focusing on their favorite leaders, the servants who are supposed to simply point them to God. They're now, even within Corinth, dividing over which Christian leader is their favorite, whose baptism is worth more, who's the better leader, who is the better speaker. Some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. These divisions and the myriad of other problems in the church at Corinth are the sorts of things that happen when God is not cherished above all things, where lack of pursuit of God sort of drifts, and we put a replacement there for God, and that replacement is a fallen, fallible, normal person like us. The Christian life in Corinth had become more about the personality of the leader than the person of Jesus. And I love how Paul says, what even is Paul? He doesn't say who. He says, what? What, is, what even is Apollos? Like, what even is Paul? Nothing. Servants. Like, all we do is plant and water. And we'll be in some way in God's economy, right, paid back for the planting and watering. But we don't bring the growth. That's only God. Life, growth, transformation, peace, unity, joy, all these things we want both individually, corporately, and in our world, they are gifts from God. They're not from me, Paul says. If this was helpful in Corinth, it's especially helpful in our celebrity-obsessed, consumeristic culture Today, this text can help us avoid a major pitfall as a church the idolatry of the personality. The idolatry of the personality, where slowly but surely the pastor, the speaker, the leader, the brand, the name, the whatever begins to creep its way up, and the love of God begins to creep its way down. Paul would have no category for churches with brand identities today. Not that there's much wrong with that. It's part of our contextualized existence. 
But Paul wouldn't have it. There is no New Testament category for churches within a block of each other that think they're a part of something entirely different than the other. Right? That, that sort of fracturing, that sort of splintering, in, in, in a normal sense, that sort of, sort of complication of doctrines. None of that has happened yet. Paul has no category that in this neighborhood in Corinth and in this neighborhood in Corinth, there would be churches that, that, that see each other as, as enemies, or there would be churches that are in the same sort of even stream theologically who then differentiate themselves based on sort of a, a catchphrase, a slogan, a logo, or something like that. If he could look through space and time and see us this morning, I think he would respond something along the line of this logic. What then even is the popular pastor or popular leader? He, she, they're just servants. What then even is that church or this church? They're just part of the field, verse 9. You are God's field, God's building. You're the ones we're serving. You're the ones he's growing. You're the ones he's building. What even is the popular pastor? What even is this podcaster I listen to? He's just, just a servant. What even is this movement, this church, this thing? It's just a field. We talk in many ways about the churches, about churches and leaders the way the Corinthians would talk about their leaders. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. I follow this church. I follow that church. And this morning, as we grow, and in many ways, as we improve, we will not run the rat race of being better than every other church in our city. We aren't keeping up with the Joneses who know Jesus. We're chasing after the Joneses who don't know Jesus. I'll say that again. That was pretty good. We aren't keeping up with the Joneses who do know Jesus. We're chasing after the Joneses who don't know Jesus. Before we consider our contextualized identity as resurrection church, we consider our essential identity as a church period. We are a gathering of God's people at this moment in space and time, a colony of heaven in a country of death. We are disciples of Jesus, and we are pilgrims to the kingdom of God. We are not simply fans of a brand or a leader. Disciple and pilgrim. In a book that's been massively helpful for me, I even brought it on the stage to show you. Uh, I recommend that you read this in 2020. Eugene Peterson's written a text called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And, and he centers around these two metaphors of disciple and pilgrim. A disciple is someone in an apprenticeship to someone. We are disciples of Jesus. We are learning the Jesus way. We are following Christ. A pilgrim is someone who's going somewhere. They're going to an ultimate place, somewhere where they'll settle. We are disciples of Jesus going to the kingdom of God. And that pilgrimage, that journey, is a long one with many peaks and valleys. And as his disciples, we are committed to our master for a long obedience in the same direction. A quote from this book as I was looking it over this week that stuck out. He says, in our kind of culture, anything, even news about God can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it just goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world, but there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition 
of virtue. There's little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians would call holiness. It grieves me how many times I've seen someone get really excited about their church, this one or another one, and then the fad wears off and there's no pursuit of God. Leaders, books, podcasts, and even on some level sermons, these point you to God. They are not the point in and of themselves. As we embark on 2020, we are simply disciples and pilgrims continuing our long obedience in the same direction. And as we know, this life is not glamorous. We wake up, most of us shower and brush our teeth. We pray, read our Bibles, we go to work, we struggle, we face hundreds of choices, navigating them the best that we can with the Spirit in us, the Word before us, and the body of Christ, the church around us. We learn how to live in this big wild world that God has made. We sin, we fail, we disappoint others and ourselves, and we fall. But even in the falling, there is a God who's picking us up, who's wrapping us in love, and who's wooing us again, not by his harshness, but by his mercy and kindness. And we repent. We confess that we're trying to live our way, and we commit through the Spirit, the Word, and the church to live his way. Some days are good, some days are not, but day in and day out in our hearts and homes, we are turning from our ways of living to Jesus' ways of living. And in this unspectacular consistency, there is growth. In this unspectacular consistency, there is growth. Without this unspectacular consistency, there is no growth. Our churches in many ways, and I say this with grace, knowing that I'm part of the problem and want to be part of the solution, but our churches are filled with immature people looking for shortcuts to maturity. Growing in grace is not complicated. It's just costly. Leaders, apostolic leaders like Paul or Apollos, pastoral leaders today like me and and famous ones out there, they're, they're servants. What do servants do? They do small things. The second feature of consistency I want to consider this morning is consistency in small things. Now, in the text, Paul says what? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Planting and watering are, are relatively easy in the grand scheme of things that we do in life. It's a metaphor this audience would readily understand. It doesn't make, take much time to dig a hole and put something in it. It doesn't take much time to fill a bucket with water and dump, something, dump it on a plant. Uh, anyone can do that. Um, Paul says he who plants and he who waters are... They're nothing. In God's wisdom, though, even these small tasks are significant tasks. Why? Because God is with them. Small things from our hands do big things in God's hands. 
Small things from our hands do big things in God's hands. While you're just planting, while you're just watering day in, day out, while you're pruning, while you're making sure the plant's got light, something inside that plant is happening that you could never force or make happen. Life is growing. And that life gives way to beauty. While you're working, God is growing something beautiful. Do not despise the small things. Paul thinks of the task that even the most famed Christians ever, the apostles, he thinks of their work as as small tasks in many ways. In many liturgical traditions that have been profoundly impactful, helping me think less in terms of days and minutes and centuries and eternity. There is, uh, on the priest, you'll see a sort of uh, scarf, right, uh, a sash thing that will wear around and it will come down on, on both sides of their chest. And that is supposed to resemble the yoke that goes on an ox. And the idea is that when the pastor, the priest, is bringing the word of God, the congregation is looking up at them, and they see the sash, they see that scarf thing, and they think, that guy's just as dumb as an ox. He is a dumb ox who's bringing us something beautiful. That preacher is merely a dumb ox, but what he's carrying is the word of God. Small tasks are not below faithful servants. We can uh, apply this to our lives in countless ways, and I challenge you to do so. But for the sake of time and the purpose of this morning, I'm going to apply this principle of consistency in small things, like planting, like watering, like teaching, like all the things that we do to congregational life. I did an extended diatribe on this because it was a members meeting and not a sermon, and I could do it. And I talked a lot about how coaching basketball has made me uh, a better pastor. It's made me a more, ta- a more tactical thinker in terms of the day in and, and day out sort of um, goals and accomplishing those goals and how to think about repeatedly doing things. And uh, it's just been really helpful for me, coaching basketball. Our JV team is 3-3, three and three, which I coach. Uh, we beat Winfield, which to me was all I needed for my birthday. Uh, so we're getting better, I say. But coaching hoops has taught me more than just sort of winning basketball games, right? In, in one sense, the coach's job is to repeatedly get his guys to do small things well, right? You're sort of developing this neuromuscular integration through repetition that simulates the actions that you'll use in the competitive arena, And those repeated, unspectacular actions develop this neuromuscular integration that prepares you for whatever lies ahead. So the way that you're preparing day in and day out in these small tasks is shaping you, it's forming you in such a way that you're going to either be more prepared on on game day or you're going to be less prepared on game day. And the best coaches know how to simulate those actions to get their minds and bodies on the same wavelength and to get sort of a product out onto the field, the court, the arena, whatever, that is able to succeed even perhaps if you have uh, less talent or or manpower or, or whatever. And so the ways, you know, you would approach practice determine how you're going to play. Now, thinking back as a pastor, and now thinking about you as a member or an attendee at least of a fellowship, how are you 
approaching repeated unspectacular actions in the life of the congregation? How am I approaching the repeated unspectacular actions in congregational life? That's part one of the question. And part two is the hammer. What would our church look like if everyone adopted your approach? What would our church look like if everyone adopted your approach to a Sunday morning? Attendance. Would the room be empty twice a month? Three times a month? Attitude. More than just showing up. Are, are you here to worship God? Are you here to learn to love your brothers and sisters, even the ones you may not naturally love? Are you seeking out new relationships or going to corners and hoping that new relationships can't find you? Are you willing to just do small things well, or do you ask, man, what are we even paying Mason for? Well, that's not my job. That's so-and-so's job. Do you have the attitude of a servant? Service-wise, what would happen on a Sunday morning if everyone brought the level of energy and enthusiasm and intensity to the little ways that you serve? Giving, what if everyone gave financially in the way that I did? I guarantee you, church, if 10 people would bring their best week in and week out, not waiting for someone else to make it a better place, but that you bear that burden, bear that responsibility, knowing that you're coming to love your brothers and sisters, build them up in Christ, encourage them, and live as the church in the everyday stuff of life. I guarantee you that if 10 people thought about excellence in the small things, this entire fellowship will notice and feel that. The path to leadership goes straight through service. And the role of the leader never leaves the path of service. You won't start taking the stage more seriously. I won't start taking my sermons more seriously when there's 400 people down here instead of 100 people down here. You will not take your role as a greeter more seriously when there's a ton more people walking through the door. You will not take your role as a teacher when there's a lot more kids in your class more seriously when there's more kids in your class. The patterns we're creating today are either preparing us for where we're going tomorrow or they're keeping us from getting to where God's taking us tomorrow. If this theater will be filled, it will be filled, filled, filled. The liberty came out in me there. If this theater will be filled, it will be filled after we commit to excellence in small tasks, not before we commit to excellence in small tasks. Here's some coach speak for you. How you do anything is how you do everything. Discipline is doing what needs to be done as well as it can be done and doing it that way all the time. In 2020, we will be consistent in our pursuit of God will be, be consistent in small things. Speaking congregationally here, but I challenge you to think of ways individually and in your families how to be consistent and faithful in small things. Third, a lot of us are thinking about goals and things in the new year, and I want us to be consistent in pursuit of attainable goals. Now, here's what I mean. Let's go back to the text. What then is Apollos, right? What even is Paul? Pursue God, not these personalities. What even is this conference, this church, this teacher, whatever? What even is that? Just don't, if that's a tool, great. But if it's more than a tool, let it be. They're just servants. 
I planted Apollos waters and, and God gave the growth. I planted Apollos waters. They had tasks, they had roles, but God gave the growth there. Me and Apollos, we're, we're one, we're, we're doing the same thing, and God's the one who's acting in powerful ways. So there's this picture here of Paul and Apollos working, and there's this picture of God working. And Paul and Apollos likely would have sort of goals for their work and asking God to do the sorts of things from our first scripture reading that are abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine or do for ourselves. Now, in, uh, we did this uh, training for our team that went to Prague uh, with our partnership there in Czech Republic called Foundations. We didn't do it with our India team because there's a lot more training that's required for that trip. Um, but in this Foundations book, sort of there are some core missiological principles that help us act biblically and avoid many uh, cultural and sociocultural pitfalls that come with, with thinking about uh, cross-cultural missions. And in, in this curriculum, there was a, a phrase that just stuck out to me and has impacted me greatly. In the curriculum, talking about the ways that they sort of evaluate their missionaries, the way that they uh, encourage them to plan, the curriculum says this. We cannot set goals for God. Like, he's not on my agenda, believe it or not. So it's inappropriate for us to set numerical goals for things that only he can do. Like, it might work us into a frenzy to be like, we're going to fill the theater, man. We're going to have to replace the seats up there, man. We're, you know, we're going to this, this, this. We want to hold that vision out there. But we're not setting a numerical goal for God that, God, we want you to do this. We, you're going to do this by this date. That's inappropriate. However, it's completely appropriate for us to set goals for what we intend to do. We should set goals for our own activities in entry, in evangelism, in disciple-making, in healthy church formation, in leadership development, and in the missionary task exit. Meaning, we set goals for ourselves, not for God. We plant. We water. What are my goals in planting? What are my goals in watering? Just as Paul saw differing levels of response in different locations, we don't know how many people are going to believe. We don't know how many churches we will plant. But we can, should, and must set goals for ourselves. So as you're thinking individually about the, your goals for the new year, think in terms of outputs or inputs. Think in terms of commitment to a process. In your discipleship groups, talk about how are we setting goals in spiritual formation, evangelism, and disciple-making. Let's kind of put inputs and outputs sort of side by side to get a feel for it. And go ahead and have the res kids come on down so they can be a part of uh, the baptism if they sound the alarm, whoever does that. Not the actual alarm, that would be kind of productive. An outcome may be higher attendance. A goal then, as a church may be, and the goal individually may be, I want to commit to showing up maybe 75% of the time, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll plan on being present at a certain threshold, maybe. Because what happens then is when we come, our attendance grows. If that's the outcome we want, those are the inputs that we give. An outcome we want may be sending long-term missionaries. 
A goal we can set then would be to commit to a day of corporate prayer and fasting, maybe once a month, to ask God to use us as a vehicle for reaching the nations with the news of Jesus who lived, died, and rose in the place of sinners like us. An outcome we want, maybe to baptize 15, 20 people, a number like that. We want that sort of outcome in 2020. A goal we can set then isn't just the goal is baptizing that particular outcome, but the the goal we would write down, maybe a specific list of friends. I want to share with them. I want to invest in them. I want to ask somebody to pray with me and hold me accountable for sharing with them. We keep in mind that we and our little inputs aren't bringing life. Paul and Apollos are planting and watering, but God's doing what only God can do, and they're doing these small tasks. Something's happening, but what's happening with their obedience is magnified and multiplied by God's power, and the church does something spectacular. We can't do anything, but God can do everything, and that frees us to do something. We can't do anything, but God can do everything, and that frees us to do something. So this morning, we embark on the journey we're already on. We continue our long obedience in the same direction as disciples of Jesus and as pilgrims the kingdom come. We will plant and we will water and we will ask God to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Church, as we zoom out and, and begin to wrap our way to a close, we'll have our baptism in just a moment. Brittany, I'll tell you when to come up. Faithful doesn't even begin to describe how mercifully the Lord has dealt with us. As we look into 2020, char- church, I charge you. Don't place your hope in recent success. Don't let resurrection be your walk with God. And don't assume that one day there's going to be a magical shift and just 500 people are going to come in here. And don't assume that if that outcome were to happen, your life would be any different than it is now. Now I speak individually to each of you. Don't believe that the life of Christ isn't for you. Don't believe that you're somehow outside of the whole world that God saw and loved for whom he left glory to come to earth, to walk the dusty streets, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, to rise victoriously over your sin. Don't assume that God wasn't thinking of you. God knows you. God loves you. God's provided a way for you to know him and love him and enjoy him and glorify him forever. And then don't believe the lie that the church doesn't need you. Don't believe the lie that your primary task is just to show up and cheer for the people on the stage. Don't believe the lie that, oh, I just come here and nothing really happens, right? Don't believe the lies that God is not able to heal brokenness in your heart, to restore that which sin has taken. And don't believe the lie that God is not able to use you for something that will stand the test of time. We aren't just living for this city. We can do some good in this city because we live for the city that is to come. We are a foretaste of where we're going. 
as we're pilgrims, as we're disciples, walking the way of Jesus to the kingdom of God, we're showing everyone else what it looks like when you live God's way, what it looks like when you submit to a long apprenticeship in the same direction under Jesus, the Messiah, the carpenter king. We show the world what it looks like to live life God's way. Brittany, if you want to go ahead and come on up. Uh, Nick, you want to help me out up here? I'm going to move the uh, pulpit out of the way so you guys will have a good view of the baptistry. Um, Part of living life God's way, well, the essence of living life God's way means turning from ourselves, our sin, our ways of being, and turning to Christ. And we celebrate that. We think about that in baptism. Nate, bro, come on, dog. Come on, man. It's a good try. He wanted you to just pick this thing up. Or he wanted me to do it. Now, I do believe in small things and doing them well. It's not below me. It's just I'm trying to talk to the people, you know. Um, Baptism. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) Mom's always looking out for me. 27 years old, man, and I'd be cold all day if it weren't for Mama. Um, I also have a side story now that we're here. Uh, A few people worried that my Apple Watch wasn't waterproof and thought that during the last few baptisms I was wasting my Apple Watch. I was like, it's waterproof. We're good. So thanks for your concern about my well-being as we embark on the tricky task of baptisms. Uh, Baptism is a picture of the gospel. On our baptistry here, we've Uh, etched, I guess, uh, buried and raised. And what happens when you go in the water is you're identifying with Christ who was buried in Joseph the rich man's grave. And what happens when you come out of the water is you're identifying yourself with that same Jesus who was laid in that grave who stood up and walked out of the grave. And you're confessing the essence of the historic Christian faith. That Jesus Christ lived, he died, he rose again. And I believe this to be true. And I believe this to be true in such a way that I understand it has implications for my life. And one of the implications for my life is turning from myself and turning to Jesus. And what we, think, what we are, are rehearsing in this act of baptism is the old self going down into the grave and the new self rising up out of the water. And when we're doing this, we're proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's Lord of all, he's Lord of my life. And I'm committing to this long obedience in the same direction. I'm identifying with Jesus and I'm identifying with his church, that body that exists across time and space, that gathers every Lord's Day in theaters and homes and everywhere in between, that's not only speaking English or one particular language, that is a body of bodies as diverse as the world. We are with Jesus and we are with that body. Now, Brittany, Nick, we'll come around to the back here. We met Brittany several months ago, and um, just from her, her, her strolling in, and over the last several months, it's been incredible to see uh, the transformation in her life, like to see her confession of faith and see her living into that confession of faith, and uh, the Lord has done a ma- an incredible, I almost said magical, that's not right, um, 
I'm just used to speaking metaphorically, right? The Lord has done a spiritual and profound and incredible work and real work in her life. So, Brittany, I invite you to step into the water here. Nick and I will both stand on this side, and I'll be on this side, that side. You can go ahead and grab a seat. We keep a little heater in it. It feels nice. It feels nice. So Brittany has trusted Christ over these last several months. She's committed to walking in obedience to him. She's plugged in in discipleship groups. And when she comes up out of this water, she's also uh, going to be fully accepted here as a member of Resurrection Church. So uh, this next step is an exciting one. I hope you're excited. Thanks. Brittany, you good? Uh, I'm thankful and Nick are thankful to be with you here uh, this morning. So I have a question. Uh, have you trusted Christ in your place? Do you trust him as Savior and Lord? Yes. Good. Then it is our pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Can we help you out here? Yeah, absolutely. Nick, you want to help her out? Give it up for Brittany. Yep. Thank you, Lord. Now we've celebrated the, the sacrament of, of baptism and we move on to uh, the Lord's table. We've proclaimed Christ. She's proclaimed Christ in a unique and profound way. And now all of us who are, are in Christ proclaim Christ here at the Lord's table. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, if you would keep reading after the divisions, remember they were divided about their leaders? They were also divided about where they sat when they got to this table. The wealthy people wanted to sit together over here. The poor people wanted to sit together over here. These people were worried about eating. These people weren't worried about eating because that's not on their mind. And all of a sudden, all these divisions are happening within the church. And Paul's saying, cut it out. This is not your table. This is God's table. And he said, and if you come to this table in an unworthy manner, you're, you're taking a curse upon yourself. What he's saying is, you're not honoring God by coming to the Lord's table and not acting like the Lord's people. So this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we're making a similar confession that Brittany just made. That I trust Jesus in my place. That his death is my death. That his life is my life. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken. And the blood represents the blood, of, the, the drink represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. And when we take that and we eat that, we're appropriating that as more than just historical fact, but we're saying... It's spiritual nourishment for me. It's true for me. So if you're not a Christian, uh, this isn't, doesn't make sense. That's not your confession. And scriptures teach that this table is for those who are in Christ. So lovingly, we ask that only those who have trusted in Christ and are committed to that long obedience in the same direction partake. If you're here and that's not you, not you ever, not you yet. This table is not achieved in merit. It's not for people who are better than other people. It's for people who have tasted God's grace and glory in that week in and week out. So if you're not in Christ, we ask that you just, you can stay seated if you want. You can go to the bathroom strategically if you want. That's what I would probably do. No one's looking at you. Everyone's thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're here. If you want to come to the table, I'd love for you to come to the table. And just kind of put your hand like this, and I'll just say a quick blessing over you. God, thank you for this person. Thank you for loving them, for creating them, and for dying in their place. 
I pray that you'll continue to order their paths. Just pray something like that for you. To let you know you're loved, you're cherished, and you're welcomed here. So I'm going to pray for us. I'll offer you a couple of moments of reflection on how can you be more consistent. Consistent in your pursuit of God. Consistent in small things as a parent, as an employee, employer, disciple, church member, whatever you may be. And how can I begin thinking about goals? How can I begin thinking about inputs I can do that are faithful, that God will take, and in his supernatural, incredible way, he will turn it into something beautiful. He'll take a seed and he'll make a rose. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. In a sense, every day is New Year's for your church. Your mercies are new every morning. Um, thank you for this opportunity to take a step back as a church. We glory in who you are, and we're thankful for how you've built us over the couple of years. And we ask now that you will help us have a faith that's strong enough to be consistent, <laughs> a faith that's strong enough to glory in unspectacular and small things. I pray that even more than a, that you'll just give us a yearning desire to be in your word. Even on days where it just feels dry or, or dull, trusting that this long obedience in the same direction is taking us somewhere. Thank you for the signposts of grace all along the way. Spirit, show us how we can be consistent, steadfast, and vigorously faithful. And Lord, we do pray for Brittany. Uh, she's been baptized this morning that she will continue to walk in your ways to the glory of your name, now and forever. In Christ's name we pray.